Okay, back to Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Um, you remember when I called the uh, chapters parts? That's that's incorrect. We're reading from part one, but there's a part two at about page 97 that restarts the chapters over. So we got way more than 14 chapters. We've got 26, it looks like. So I need to really step it up and start reading more chunks of it at a time. Anyhow, let's just get right back into it. Chapter 4. Hideous music and the sound of many shotguns. Rude vibes on a Saturday evening in Vegas. We finally got in the suite around dusk, and my attorney was immediately on the phone with room service, ordering four club sandwiches, four shrimp cocktails, a quarter rum, and nine fresh grapefruits. Vitamin C, he explained. We'll need all we can get. I agreed. By the time the drink was beginning to cut the acid and my hallucinations were down to a tolerable level, the room service waiter had a vaguely reptilian cast to his features, but I was no longer seeing huge pterodactyls lumbering around the corridors and pools of fresh blood. The only problem now was a gigantic neon sign outside the window, blocking our view of the mountains. Millions of colored balls running around and very complicated track strange symbols and filigree giving off a loud hum look outside i said why there's a big machine in the sky some kind of electric snake coming straight at us shoot it said my attorney not yet i said i want to study its habits he went over to the corner and began pulling on a chain to close the drapes look he said you got to stop this talk about snakes and leeches and lizards and all that stuff. It's making me sick. Don't worry, I said. Worry? Jesus, I almost went crazy down there in the bar. Don't ever let us back in that place. Not after you're seen at the press table. What scene? You bastard, he said. I left you alone for three minutes. You scared the shit out of those people. Wearing that goddamn marlin spike around and yelling about reptiles. You're lucky I came back in time. They were ready to call the cops. I said you were only drunk and that was and that I was taking you up to the room for a cold shower. Hell, the only reason they gave us the press pass is to get you out of there. He's pacing around nervously. Jesus, that's, that scene straightened me right out. I must have some drugs. What have you done with the mescaline? The kit bag, I said. He opened the bag and ate two pellets while I got the tape machine going. Maybe you should only eat one of these, he said. The S is still working on you. I agreed. We have to go out and go out, go out the track before dark, I said. But we have time to watch the TV news. Let's carve up this grapefruit and make a fine rum punch. Maybe toss in a blotter. Where's the car? We gave it to somebody in the parking lot, he said. I have the ticket in my briefcase. What's the number? I'll call down, have them wash the bastard, get rid of that dust and grime. Good idea, he said, but he couldn't find the ticket. Well, we're fucked, I said. We'll never convince them to give us that car without proof, he thought for a moment, then picked up the phone and asked for the garage. This is Dr. Gonzo in, 80, in 850, he said. I seem to have lost my parking stub for that red convertible I left with you, but I want the car washed and ready to go in 30 minutes. Can you send up a duplicate stub? What? Oh, well, that's fine. He hung up and reached for the hash pipe. No problem, he said. 
That man remembers my face. <laughs> That's good, I said. I'll probably have a big net ready for us when we show up. He shook his head. As your attorney, I advise you not to worry about me. The TV news was about the Laos invasion, a series of horrifying disasters, explosions and twisted wreckage, men fleeing in terror, Pentagon generals babbling insane lies. Turn that shit off, screamed my attorney. Let's get out of here. A wise move. Moments after we picked up the car, my attorney went into a drug coma and ran a red light on Main Street before I could bring us under control. I propped him up in the passenger seat and took the wheel myself. Feeling fine, extremely sharp. All around me in traffic, I could see people talking and I wanted to hear what they were talking about. All of them. But the shotgun mic was in the trunk and I decided to leave it there. Las Vegas is not the kind of town where you want to drive down the main street aiming a black bazooka looking instrument at people. Turn up the radio. Turn up the tape machine. Look in the sunset up ahead. Roll the windows down for a better taste of cool desert air. Ah, uh, yes. This is what it's all about. Total control now. Tooling around the main drag on Saturday night in Las Vegas. Two good old boys in a fire apple red convertible. Stone. Ripped. Twisted. Good people. Great God, what is this terrible music? The battle hymn of Lieutenant Callie. As we go marching on, when I reach my final campground in that land beyond the sun, and the great, <laughs> the great commander asked me, what did he ask, Rusty? Did you fight or did you run? And what did you tell him, Rusty? We responded to their rifle fire with everything we had. No, I can't be hearing this. It must be the drug. I glanced around at my attorney, but he was staring up at the sky, and I could see that his brain had gone off to the campground beyond the sun. Thank Christ he can't hear this music, I thought. It would drive him into the racist frenzy. Mercifully, the song ended, but my mood was already shattered, and now the fiendish cactus juice took over, plunging me into subhuman funk, and suddenly we came on the turnoff to the Mint Gun Club. One mile, the sign said, but even a mile away, I could hear the crackling scream of two-stroke bike engines winding out, and then coming closer, I heard another sound. Shotguns. No mistaking that flat, hollow boom. I stopped the car. What the hell's going on down there? I rolled up all the windows and eased down the gravel road, hunched low on the wheel until I saw some dozen figures pointing shotguns into the air, firing at regular intervals. Standing on a slab of concrete out there in the mesquite desert, the scraggly little oasis in a wasteland north of Vegas, they were clustered with their shotguns about 50 yards away from the one-story concrete blockhouse, half-shaded by 10 or 12 trees and surrounded by cop cars, bike trailers, and motorcycles. Of course, the Mint Gun Club. These lunatics weren't letting anything interfere with their target practice. Here we're about a hundred bikers, mechanics, and assorted motorsport types milling around the pit area, signing in for tomorrow's race, idly sipping beers and praising each other's machines. And right in the middle of all this, oblivious to everything but the clay pigeons flipping out traps every five seconds or so, the shotgun people never missed a beat. Well, why not, I thought. The shooting provided a certain rhythm, sort of a steady baseline to a high-pitched chaos of the bike scene. I parked the car and wandered into the crowd, leaving my attorney in his coma. I bought a beer and watched the bikes checking in. 
many 405 Husqvarna's, high-tuned Swedish Fireballs, also many Yamaha's, Kawasaki's, a few 500 Triumphs, Makos here and there, a CZ, a Persang, all very fast, super light dirt bikes. No hogs in this league, not even a sportster. That would be like entering our great red shark into the dune buggy competition. Maybe I should do that, I thought. Sign my attorney up as the driver and send him out in the starting line with a head full of ether and acid. How would they handle that? Nobody would dare go on the track with a person that crazy. He would roll on the first turn and take out four or five dune buggies, a kamikaze trip. What's the, what's the interest fee? I asked the desk man. 250, he said. What if I told you I had a Vincent Black Shadow? He stared up at me, saying nothing, not friendly. I noticed he was wearing a 38 revolver on his belt. Forget it, I said. My driver's sick anyway. His eyes narrowed. Your driver ain't the only one sick around here, buddy. He has a bone in his throat, I said. What? The man was getting ugly, but suddenly his eyes switched away. He was staring at something else. My attorney, no longer wearing his Danish sunglasses, no longer wearing his Acapulco shirt, a very crazy-looking person, half-naked and breathing heavily. What's the trouble here, he croaked. This man is my client. Are you prepared to go to court? I grabbed his shoulder and gently spun him around. Never mind, I said. It's the Black Shadow. They won't accept it. Wait a minute, he shouted. What do you mean they won't accept it? Are you made a deal with these pigs? Certainly not, I said, pushing him along towards the gate. But you notice they're all armed. We're the only people here without guns. Can you hear that shooting over there? He paused, listened for an instant, then suddenly began running towards the car. You cocksuckers, he screamed over his shoulder. We'll be back. By the time we got the shark back on the highway, he was able to talk. Jesus Christ, how did we get mixed up with that gang of psychotic bigots? Let's kill the fuck out of this town. Those scumbags were trying to kill us. I had to wet my whistle. <coughs> oh, boy. Onward. Chapter 5. Covering the story. A glimpse of the press in action. Ugliness and failure. The racers were ready at dawn, fine sunrise over the desert, very tense, but the race didn't start until nine, so we had to kill about three hours in the casino next to the pits, and that's where the trouble started. The bar opened at seven. They were also a, there was also a coffee and donuts canteen in the bunker, but those of us who had been up all night in places like the Circus Circus were in no mood for coffee and donuts. We wanted strong drink. Our tempers were ugly, and there were at least 200 of us, so they opened the bar early. By 8.30, there were big crowds around the crap tables. The place was full of noise and drunken shouting. A bony, middle-aged hoodlum wearing a Harley-Davidson Harley t-shirt boomed up the bar and yelled, God damn, what day is this, Saturday? More like Sunday, someone replied. Ha! That's a bitch, ain't it? The HD boomer shouted to nobody in particular. Last night I was out in the out home in Long Beach and somebody said they were running the Mint 400 today. So I said to my old lady, man, I'm going. He laughed. So she gives me a lot of crap about it, you know. 
So I started slapping her around. Next thing I knew, two guys I never ever seen before got me out of the sidewalk working me over. Jesus, they beat me stupid. He laughed again, talking in the crowd and not seeming to care who listened. Hell yes, he continued. Then one of them says, where you going? And I says, Las Vegas to the Mint 400. So they gave me 10 bucks and drove me down the bus station. He paused. At least I think it was them. Well, anyway, here I am, and I'll tell you that one hell of a long night, man. Seven hours on that goddamn bus. But when I woke up, it was dawn, and here I was in downtown Vegas, and for a minute I didn't know where the, where the, what the hell I was doing down here. All I could think was, oh, Jesus, here we go again. Who's divorced me this time? He accepted a cigarette from somebody in the crowd, still grinning as he lit up. But then I remembered, by God, I was here for the Mint 400. And man, that's all I needed to know. I tell you, it's wonderful to be here, man. I don't give a damn who wins or loses. It's wonderful to be here with you people. Nobody argued with him. We all understood. In some circles, the Mint 400 is far, far better than the Super Bowl, the Kentucky Derby, and the Lower Oakland Roller Derby finals all rolled into one. This race attracts a very special breed, and our man in the Harley t-shirt was clearly one of them. The correspondent from Life nodded sympathetically and screamed at the bartender, Sinsaman Wazi needs. Fast, fast up with it, I croaked. Why not five? I smacked the bar with my open bleeding palm. Hell yes, bring us ten. I'll back it, the man from the Life Man screamed. Speaking, of course, of Life Magazine. He was losing his grip on the bar. I have no idea what he said up there. I just said it phonetically. But it's, I guess it's nonsense. He was losing his grip on the bar, sinking slowly to his knees, but still speaking with definite authority. This is a magic moment in sports. It may never come again. Then his voice seemed to break. I once did the triple crown, he muttered. But it's nothing like this. The frog-eyed woman clawed feverishly at his belt. Stand up, she pleaded. Please stand up. You'd be a very handsome man if you just stand up, he laughed distractedly. Listen, madam, he snapped. I'm damn near intolerably handsome down here where I am. You'd go crazy if I stood up. The woman kept pulling at him. She'd been mooning at his elbows for two hours, and now she was making her move. The man from life wanted no part of it. He slumped deeper into his, into his crouch. I turned away. It was too terrible. We were, after all, the absolute cream of the national sporting press. And we were gathered here in Las Vegas for a very special assignment to cover the fourth annual Mint 400. And when it comes to things like this, you don't fool around. But now, even before the spectacle got underway, there were signs that we might be losing control of the situation. Here we were, on this fine Nevada morning, the cool, bright dawn on the desert, hunkered down at some greasy bar in the concrete blockhouse and gambling casino called the Mint Gun Club, about ten miles out of Vegas. And with the race about to start, we were dangerously disorganized. Outside, the lunatics were playing with their motorcycles, taping the headlights, topping off oil in the forks, last-minute bolt tightening, carburetor screws, manifold nuts, etc. 
and the first 10 bikes blasted off on the stroke of a nine. It was extremely exciting, and we all went outside to watch. The flag went down, and these 10 poor buggers popped their clutches and zoomed into the first first turn. Altogether, when somebody grabbed the lead, a 405 Husqvarna, as I recall, and a cheer went up the rider, screwed (laughs) screwed it on, and disappeared into the dust. Well, that's that, somebody said. They'll be back around an hour or so. Let's go back to the bar. But not yet, no. There were something like 190 more bikes waiting to start. They went off 10 at a time, every two minutes. At first, it was impossible to watch them at the distance of some 200 yards from the starting line, but the visibility didn't last long. The third brace of 10 disappeared into the dust about 100 yards from where we stood. And by the time they'd sent off the first hundred, with still another hundred to go, our visibility was down to something like 50 feet, and we could see as far as the hay bales at the end of the pits. Beyond that point, the incredible dust cloud that would hang over this part of the desert for the next two days was already formed up solid. None of us realized at the time that this last we would see of the fabulous Mint 400. By noon, it was hard to see the pit area from the bar casino 100 feet away from the blazing sun. The idea of trying to cover this race in any conventional press sense was absurd. It was like trying to keep track of a swimming meet in an Olympic-sized pool filled with talcum powder instead of water. The Ford Motor Company had come through, as promised, with a press bronco and a driver, But after a few savage runs across the desert looking for motorcycles and occasionally finding one, I abandoned this vehicle to the the photographers and went back to the bar. It was time, I felt, for the agonizing reprisal of the whole scene. The race was definitely underway. I had witnessed the start. That word was photographers up there, by the way. I'm an idiot. I'd witnessed the start, I was sure of that much, but what now? Rent a helicopter? Get back in that stinking Bronco? Wander out in the goddamn desert to watch these fools race past the checkpoints? One every 13 minutes? By 10, they were spread out all over the course. It was no longer a race. Now it was an endurance contest. The only visible action was at the starting finish line. Starting slash finish line where every few minutes some geek would come speeding out of the dust cloud and stagger off his bike while his pit crew would gas it up and then launch it back into the track with a fresh driver for another 50-mile lap. Another brutal hour of kidney-killing madness out there in the terrible dust-blind limbo. Somewhere around 11, I made another tour in the press vehicle, but we found, but all we found were two dune buggies full of what looked like retired petty officers from San Diego, They cut us off in a dry wash and demanded, Where is this damn thing? Beats me, I said. We're just good patriotic Americans like yourself. Both of their buggies were covered with ominous symbols, screaming eagles carrying American flags in their claws, a slant-eyed snake being chopped to bits by a buzzsaw made of stars and stripes, and one of the vehicles had what looked like a machine gun mount on the passenger side. They were having a bang-up time just crashing around the desert at top speed and hassling anybody they met. What outfit you fellas with? One of them shouted. The engines were all roaring. We could barely hear each other. The sporting press, I yelled. We're friendlies. Hired geeks. 
dim smiles. If you want a good chase, I shouted, you should get back after that skunk from CBS News up ahead in the big black Jeep. He's the man responsible for the selling of the Pentagon. Hot damn, two of them screamed at once. A black Jeep, you say? They roared off and so did we, bouncing across the rocks and scrub oak cactus like iron tumbleweeds. The beer in my hand flew up and hit the top and then fell in my lap, soaked my crotch with warm foam. You're fired, I said to the driver. Take me back to the pits. <clears throat> it was time I felt to get grounded, to ponder this rotten assignment and figure out how to cope with it. Lacerda insisted on total coverage. He wanted to go back out in the dust storm and keep trying for some rare combination of film and lens that might penetrate this awful stuff. Joe, our driver, was willing. His name was not really Joe, but what would have been instructed to call him out I had talked to the Fomoco boss one night before, and when he mentioned the driver he was assigning us, he said, his real name is Steve, but you should call him Joe. Why not, I said. We'll call him anything he wants. How about Zoom? No dice, said the Ford man. It has to be Joe. Lacerda agreed, and sometime around noon, he went out in the desert again, and the company of our driver, Joe. I went back to the Blockhouse Bar Casino. That was actually the Mint Gun Club where I begin to drink heavily, think heavily, and make many heavy notes. <clears throat> so tonight, you get a third chapter, you lucky so-and-sos. I know, I like to spoil you. Also, I've noticed like the sound on this has not been very loud, so I'll bend over the mic some more. Apparently, I scooted too far away. Right, here we go. <clears throat> Chapter 6 A Night on the Town Confrontation at the Desert Inn Drug Frenzy at the Circus Circus Saturday, midnight Memories of the night are extremely hazy All I have for guide pegs Is a pocket full of Kino cards And cocktail napkins All covered with scribbled notes Here's one <clears throat> Get the Ford man Demand a Bronco for race observation purposes Photos? Lacerda, call why not a helicopter? Get on the phone. Lean on the fuckers. Heavy yelling. Another says, Sign on Paradise Boulevard. Stopless and topless. Bush League sex compared to L.A. Pasties here. Total naked public humping in L.A. Las Vegas is a society of armed masturbators. Gambling is the kicker here. Sex is extra. Weird trip for high rollers. House whores for winners, hand jobs for the bad luck crowd. A long time ago, when I lived in Big Sur down the road from Lionel Olay, I had a friend who liked to go to Reno for crap shooting. He owned a sporting goods store in Carmel. And one month he drove his Mercedes Highway Cruiser to Reno on three consecutive weekends, winning heavily each time. After three trips, he was something like 15000 ahead, so he decided to skip the fourth weekend and take some friends to dinner in Nepenthe. I'm not sure how you pronounce it that way, but I didn't look it up. Always quit winners, he explained, and besides, it's a long drive. On Monday morning, he got a phone call from Reno from the general manager of the casino he'd been working out on. We missed you this weekend, said the GM. The pitmen were bored. 
shucks, said my friend. So the next weekend, he flew up to Reno in a private plane with a friend and two girls, all special guests of the GM. Nothing too good for high rollers. And on Monday morning, the same plane, the casino's plane, flew him back to Monterey. The pilot lent him a dime to call a friend for a ride to Carmel. He was 30000 in debt, and two months later he was looking down the barrel of one of the world's heaviest collections of agencies. One of the heavy, world's heaviest collection agencies. So he sold this store, but that didn't make the nut. They could wait for the rest, he said. But then he got stomped, which convinced him that maybe he'd better... He'd be better off borrowing enough money to pay the whole wad. Mainline gambling is a very heavy business, and Las Vegas makes Reno seems like your friendly neighborhood grocery store. For a loser, Vegas is the meanest town on earth. Until about a year ago, there was a giant billboard on the outskirts of Las Vegas saying, Don't gamble with marijuana. In Nevada, possession equals 20 years. Sell life. So I was not entirely at ease drifting around the casinos on this Saturday night with a car full of marijuana and a head full of acid. We had several narrow escapes. At one point, I tried to drive the great red shark into the laundry room of the landmark hotel, but the door was too narrow and the people inside seemed dangerously excited. We drove over to the Desert Inn to catch the Debbie Reynolds, Harry James show. I don't, I don't know about you, I told my attorney. But in my line of business, it's important to be hep. Mine too, he said. But as your attorney, I advise you to drive over the Tropicana and pick up pick up on Guy Lombardo. He's in the blue room with the Royal Canadians. Why, I asked. Why what? Why would I pay out my hard-earned dollars to watch a fucking corpse? Look, he said. Why are we out here? To entertain ourselves or do this job? The job, of course, I replied. We're driving around in circles, weaving through the parking lot in a lot of places I thought was the dunes, but it turned out to be the Thunderbird. Or maybe it was the Hacienda. My attorney was scanning the Las Vegas visitor, looking for hints of action. How about Nickel Nick Slot Arcade, he said. Hot slots, that sounds heavy. 29 cent hot dogs. Suddenly, people were screaming at us. We were in trouble. Two thugs wearing red, gold, military overcoats were looming over the hood. What the hell are you doing? One screamed. You can't park here. Why not? I said. It seemed like a reasonable place to park. Plenty of space. I'd been looking for a parking spot for what seemed like a very long time. Too long. I was about ready to abandon the car and call a taxi. But then, yes, yes, we found a space. Which turned out to be the sidewalk in front of the main entrance of the Desert Inn. I'd run over so many curbs by that time that I hadn't even noticed this last one. But now we found ourselves in a position that was hard to explain. Blocking it, blocking the entrance. Thugs yelling at us. Bad confusion. My attorney was out of the car in a flash waving a $5 bill. We want this car parked. I'm an old friend of Debbie's. I used to romp with her. For a moment I thought he'd blown it. Then one of the doormen reached out for the bill saying, Okay, okay, I'll take care of it, sir. And he tore off the parking stub. Holy shit, I said as we hurried through the lobby. They almost had us there. That was quick thinking. What do you expect? He said, I'm your attorney. And you owe me five bucks. I want it now. I shrugged and gave him a bill. 
this garish deep Orlon car can <laughs> carpeted lobby of the Desert Inn seemed an inappropriate place to be haggling about nickel-dime bribes for the parking lot attendant. This was Bob Hope's turf. Frank Sinatra's. Spiru Agnew's. The lobby fairly reeked of high-grade formica, formica and plastic palm trees. It was clearly a high-class refuge for big spenders. We approached the ballroom full of confidence, but they refused to let us in. We were too late, said a man in a wine-colored tuxedo. The house was already full. No seats left at any price. Fuck seats, said my attorney. We're old friends of Debbie's. We drove all the way from L.A. for this show, and we're goddamn well going in. The tux man began jabbering about fire regulations, but my attorney refused to listen. Finally, after a lot of bad noise, he let us in for nothing, provided we would stand quietly in the back and not smoke. We promised, but the moment we got inside, we lost control. The tension had been too great. Debbie Reynolds was yucking across the stage in a silver afro wig to the tune of Sergeant Pepper from the golden trumpet of Harry James. Jesus creeping shit, said my attorney. We wandered into a time capsule. Heavy hands grabbed our shoulders. I jammed the hash pipe back into my pocket just in time. We were dragged across the lobby and held against the floor front door by goons until our car was fetched up. Okay, get lost, said the wine tux man. We're giving you a break. If Debbie has friends like you guys, she's in worse trouble than I thought. We'll see about this, my attorney shouted as we drove away. You paranoid scum! I drove around to the Circus Circus Casino and parked near the back door. This is the place, I said. They'll never fuck with us here. Where's the ether? said the attorney. This mescaline isn't working. I gave him the key to the trunk while I lit up the hash pipe. He came back with an ether bottle, uncapped it, then poured some into Kleenex and mashed it under his nose, breathing heavily. I soaked another Kleenex and fouled, my, fouled up my own nose. The smell was overwhelming, even with the top down. Soon we were staggering up the stairs towards the entrance, laughing stupidly and dragging each other along like drunks. This is the main advantage of ether. It makes you behave like the village drunkard in some early Irish novel. Total loss of basic motor skill. Blurred vision. No balance. Numb tongue. Severance of all connection between the body and the brain. Which is interesting, because the brain continues to function more or less normally. You can actually watch yourself behaving in this terrible way, but you can't control it. You approach the turnstiles leading into the circus circus, and you know that when you get there, you have to give the man two dollars or he won't let you inside. But when you get there, everything goes wrong. You misjudge the distance to the turnstile and slam against it. Bounce off and grab hold of an old woman, keep from falling. Some angry Rotarian shoves you and you think, what's happening here? What's going on? And you hear yourself mumbling, dogs fuck the Pope, no fault of mine. Watch out. Why money? My name is Brinks. I was born. Born? Get sheep over the side. Women and children in the armored car. Orders from Captain Zeep. Ah, oh, devil ether. A total body drug. The mind recoils in horror, unable to communicate with the spinal column. The hands flap crazily, unable to get money out of the pocket. Garbled laughter and hissing from the mouth, always smiling. Ether is the perfect drug for Las Vegas. 
In this town, they love a drunk. Fresh meat. So they put us through the turnstile and turned us loose inside. The Circus Circus is what the whole hep world would be doing on the Saturday night if the Nazis had won the war. This was the Sixth Reich. <clears throat> the ground floor is full of gambling tables, like all other casinos, but the place is also four stories high in the style of a circus tent. <clears throat> and all manners of strange county fair Polish carnival madness is going up, uh, going on in, in this space. Right above the gambling tables, the 40 flying Carazito brothers are doing a higher wire trampeze act, along with four muzzled wolverines and six nymphette sisters from San Diego. So you're down the main floor playing blackjack, and the stakes are getting high when suddenly you chance to look up, and there, right above you, your head is your head is a half-naked 14-year-old girl being chased through the air by a snarling wolverine, which is suddenly locked in a death battle with two silver-painted Polacks who come swinging down from opposite balconies and meet in midair on the wolverine's neck. <laughs> both Polacks both seize the animal as they fall straight down towards the crap table, but they bounce off the net. They separate and spring back up towards the roof in three different directions, and just as about they're, they're about to fall again, they're grabbed out there by three Korean kittens and trapezed off to one of the balconies. This madness goes on and on, but nobody seems to notice. The gambling action runs 24 hours a day on the main floor, and the circus never ends. Meanwhile, on all the balconies, the customers are being hustled by every conceivable type of bizarre shuck. All kinds of funhouse type booths shoot the pasties off the nipples of a 10-foot bull dyke and win a cotton candy goat. <laughs> stand, in stand in front of the fantastic machine, my friend, and for just 99 cents, your likeness will appear 200 feet tall on a screen above downtown Las Vegas. 99 cents more for a voice message. Say whatever you want, fella. They'll hear you. Don't worry about that. Remember... You'll be 200 feet tall. Jesus Christ. I can see myself lying in bed in the Mint Hotel, half asleep and staring idly out the window when suddenly a vicious Nazi drunkard appears 200 feet tall in the midnight sky screaming gibberish at the world. Woodstock, Uber's Isles! We will close the drapes tonight. A thing like that could send a drug person careening around the room like a ping pong ball. Hallucinations are bad enough, but after a while you learn to cope with things, like seeing your dead grandmother crawling up your leg with a knife in her teeth. Most acid fanciers can handle this sort of thing. But nobody can handle that other trip, the possibility that any freak with $1.98 can walk into the circus circus and suddenly appear in the sky over downtown Las Vegas 12 times the size of God, howling anything that comes into their head. No, this is not a good town for psychedelic drugs. Reality itself is too twisted. Good mescaline comes on slow. The first hour is all waiting, then about halfway through the second hour, you start cursing the creep who burned you because nothing's happening. And then zang! Fiendish intensity. Strange glow and vibrations. A very heavy gig in a place like the Circus Circus. Wow, this reading is really wearing on me. Ugh so hard to pay attention <clears throat> but anyway
I hate to say this, said my attorney, as we sat down in the merry-go-round bar on the second balcony, but th- this place is getting to me. I think I'm getting the fear. Nonsense, I said. We came out here to find the American dream, and now we're right in the vortex, and you want to quit? I grabbed his bicep and squeezed. You must realize, I said, that we found the main nerve. I know, he said. That's what gives me the fear. The ether was wearing off, the acid was long gone, but the mescaline was running strong. We were sitting at the small, round, gold, formica table, moving in orbit around the bartender. Look over there. (laughs) Wrong voice. Look over there, I said. Two women fucking a polar bear. Please, he said. Don't tell me these things. Not now. He signaled the waitress for two more wild turkeys. This is my last drink, he said. How much money can you lend me? Not much, I said. Why? I have to go, he said. Go? Yes, leave the country. Tonight. Calm down, I said. You'll be straight in a few hours. No, no, he said. This is serious. George Metesky was serious, I said. And you see what they did to him. Don't fuck around, he shouted. One more hour in this town, I'll kill somebody. I could see he was on the edge. That fearful intensity that comes at the peak of a mescaline seizure. Okay, I said. I'll lend you some money. Let's go outside and see how much we have left. Can we make it? He said. Well, that depends on how many people we fuck with between here and the door. You want to leave quietly? I want to leave fast, he said. Okay, let's pay this bill. Get up very slowly. We're both out of our heads. This is going to be a long walk. I shouted the waitress for the bill. She came over looking bored, and my attorney stood up. Did they pay you to screw that bear? He asked her. What? He's he's just kidding, I said, stepping between them. Come on, Doc, let's go downstairs and gamble. I got him as far as the edge of the bar, the rim of the merry-go-round, but he refused to get off until it stopped turning. It won't stop, I said. It's not ever going to stop. I stepped over and turned around to wait for him, but he wouldn't move. And before I could reach out and pull him, pull him off, he was carried away. Don't move, I shouted. You'll come around. His eyes were staring blindly ahead, squinting with fear and confusion, but he didn't move a muscle until he'd made the whole circle. I waited until he was almost in front of me, then I reached out to grab him, but he jumped back and I went around the circle again. This made me very nervous. I felt I was on the verge of a freakout. The bartender seemed to be watching us. Carson City, I thought. Twenty years. I stepped on the merry-go-round and hurried around the bar, approaching my attorney on his blind side, and when it came to the right spot, I pushed him off. He staggered in the aisle and uttered a hellish scream as as he lost his balance and went down, thrashing into the crowd, rolling like a log. Then up again in a flash, fist clenched, looking for somebody to hit. I approached him with my hands in the air, trying to smile. You fell, I said. Let's go. By this time, people were watching us, but the fool wouldn't wouldn't get on the move, and I knew that would happen if I grabbed him. Okay, I said. You stay here and go to jail. I'm leaving. I started walking fast towards the stairs, ignoring him. This moved him. Did you see that? He said. He caught up with me. Some son of a bitch kicked me in the back. Probably the bartender, I said. He wanted to stomp you for what you said to the waitress. Good God. Let's get out of here. Where's the elevator? Don't go near the elevator, I said. That's just what they want us to do.
trap us in a steel box and take us to the basement. I looked over my shoulder, but nobody was following. Don't run, I said. They'd like an excuse to shoot us. He nodded, seeming to understand. We walked fast along the big indoor midway shooting galleries, tattoo parlors, money changers, and cotton candy booths. Then out through a bank of glass doors and across the grass downhill to a parking lot where the red shark waited. You drive, he said. I think there's something wrong with me. And that brings us to a quarter of the way through the book. My God, this is like the hardest thing I've ever done is read a book to people. Hmm. I could sit here for an hour and just bullshit you. But this is this is really something else. I can't. That's, my mind has challenged me to pay attention to anything else in the room and not read this book. But yeah, well, we're getting through it. <laughs> I'm not going to make any more promises to anybody. Anyhow, until next time, bye. Oh, and remember, I'm still working on horrible history, and my girlfriend Stephanie is helping me with that, with research and stuff, so I'm going to have to let her on air with me. On air. What the fuck? You're not on air. I'm going to have to let her in on the recording, and I hope she doesn't yoko it up and ruin everything for me. Anyhow... Keep listening.